This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Word of Faith Preachers, How Misinterpretation of Scripture Might Lead You Astray. And the author, Joe Pajota Jr. And Joe joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joe. Hello, sir. How you doing? Good to have you with us. Now I'm going to read a few things you have written to kind of set the stage about your book. Uh, You say this, Have you ever heard people say, the reason I don't go to church is because of all the hypocrites in the church? Well, if you have, that's the reason I wrote this book. Have you ever wondered what you hear on TV by these TV evangelists is true? Who is here to check them to make sure that it is true? Have you ever wondered? That's why this book is for you. Well, that sets the stage. I guess you are got questions and you have answers. And this isn't your first book. You, your first book was called Holiness, Can the Church Do This or Not? And if the church can do this, how come so many in the church aren't doing it? <laughs> so you have lots of questions. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, like you said, uh, i got two books out there, uh, thank God. And the first one, for holiness, can, it, uh, can the church do this or not? And and why is it seems so many church aren't doing it? My, my motivation, and I talk about this in Chapter 1 of the book, is called How This Book Got Started. And I was actually in Iraq, uh, for those of the listening audience, I'm actually a soldier in the Army, and I was actually uh, deployed to Iraq, and the Lord allowed me to get to pastor the, the gospel service over there. And then one night, one of the elders came up to me and was like, hey, sir, you know, I just want to, you know, say thank you and encourage you because you're the first brother I've seen in a long time in the church that's not chasing a skirt. Uh, and it just, it just, you know, the Holy Spirit just kind of gave a lot of stuff to me and said, well, you know, if it's been that long since you've seen a brother who's actually lifting it or not chasing a skirt, you know, what is that saying about the brothers in the body of Christ, <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, and, and why is the church so jacked up? And just over the years, I mean, I've, I've been, you know, in church now for about, you know, 14, 15 years, and I've, I've just seen a lot of people, you know, not wanting to go to church and not give their life to the Lord because they're like, well, all those, you know, you know hypocritical Christians in the church. And it was that topic, it was that music, if you will, is what the Lord, you know, used to really set the stage for my first book and really talk about why why is that? Why is there so many hypocrites in the church, or why does it seem like there's so many, so many, so many of them out there? And but at the same time, to say that there are some out actually living it. So, you know. So first, pose the question: Why is that? And answer that. But then also talk about you know what can we do to fix it? And what do we got? What does the church got to do to get there? So that statement you know doesn't have to be true necessarily all the time. Um, and then the, the second book is you know Word of Faith Preachers. You know just basically talking about you know you know you know if you ever seen like these TV evangelists and stuff, particularly that pertains to like you know asking people for money and things like that, which I don't have a problem with you know keeping Christian radio and Christian television on, on the airwaves. Um, but I do have a problem with it, you know, if you're preaching, you know, whack doctrine in order to, to get the money. And, uh, and, I, and over the years, I, I've been exposed to a lot of different things. Because I, I personally, myself, I came out of the Word of Faith, so I'm very familiar in what they talk and what they preach and teach. And, you know, the Lord just led me in another direction, and I share in the book why some of their stuff is wrong. But then I also compare it to what is actually right, so the reader can actually see what's, you know, really legit as well. You make this comment. Uh, I'll read what you have uh, shared with us. You say many Christians still believe that we have a sin nature and therefore are sinners. I don't believe that. I believe we are the righteousness of God, not sinners. Right. That doesn't mean right. we don't sin, but our state is not sinners. We have been declared righteous by God Himself. Why don't you explain some of that and uh, give us your reasons? Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's a really good question, sir, because that's in my first book, you know, Holiness, Can the Church Do This or Not? And I'm actually glad you highlighted that, because that's probably one of my most, I would say, controversial topics in the book. Um, there's, there's a lot of Christians that would probably disagree with me, and it's, and I understand that. 
Um, you know, because a lot of Christians say, you know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And, and I agree with that to a point, because they're basically saying, look, nobody's perfect, and, you know, we still sin from time to time. And I agree with that. Um, but, however, you know, I look at it like this. You know, the Bible says, you know, through Adam in Romans chapter 5, all became sinners, and through Jesus all become, become righteous. So we know all became sinners or have inherited a sin nature through Adam. Well, I look at it like this. If if everybody still has a sin nature, well, the sin nature is the thing that makes people keep sinning. Well, if Christians still have a sin nature, then by default you're basically saying then that Christians have no power over sin. It's only a matter of time before a Christian, you know, screws up again, basically make a long story short. It's only a matter of time before Christians keep sinning. And if you think about that theologically then, then basically if Jesus Christ came to redeem us from sin, and if Christians have no power over sin, then basically, either one, Christ has to keep dying on the cross over and over and over again because we can never get it right, or two, basically Jesus died in vain because we don't have power over sin. So basically, what did Jesus redeem? So basically, what, what, I, what I show in Romans chapter 3, and I talk about this in chapter 3 of the book of holiness in the church, do this or not, I talk about how through Adam we inherited a sin nature. But through Jesus Christ, when we become saved, when we become Christians, we inherited the, the divine nature talked about in Second Peter, which is the nature of Christ. And the reason that we sin later on after we get saved is because we are not transformed in our mind. So basically what has to happen is as we continue to walk out this Christian life and as we continue to grow in God, you know, since we don't have to sin nature anymore, we can continue to live holier and holier as we keep going on. You know, we can continue to live and be conformed to the image of Christ as we go on. But my what I my argument is that if, if a person still has the sin nature, then ultimately at the end of the day, you know, we can't live holy even if we wanted to. And therefore, the concept of holiness is really obsolete, or we can't do it because the sin nature is still there. So the reason I say that or believe that is because I'm trying to tell, you know, let the readers know, look, you can live holy, and one of the reasons you can live holy in Christ is because the sin nature is gone, and therefore the new nature, or the right, we are now the righteousness of God, and because of that we can live righteously because of who we now are in Christ. You talk about four main heresies in your book, Word of Faith Preachers, and one of your heresies mm-hmm. deals with tithing. Now explain that. Yeah. Yes. Um, again, this is another controversial topic. A lot of word of well, I say almost all word of faith preachers are, you know, big time tithing advocates. I mean, tithing is like, you know, how they get finances for their ministry and, you know, to be on TV and do what they do, which is, you know, no problem with that at all. However, the reason I have a problem with it is I would have to ask them or any, you know, having, you know, advocate tithing person or person in the body of Christ is, you know, what is your definition of tithing? And most churches will say, you know, 10% of your gross income, i.e. 10% of your gross income or 10% of your paycheck. Unfortunately, if you, if you go back, and this is going to shock some, you know, listeners if they read this, if you go back and read Malachi chapter 3, you know, 10% of what is income is not even, not even in the Bible. Um, I'm, I'm going to say it again. Tithing in the Bible was actually food. So in Malachi 3, when it says, you know, you know, you know, you have robbed me, you know, wherein we robbed you, you know, in tithes and offerings. And then it says, you know, and then God says, you know, prove me now therewith, you know, to be meat in my house. Well, that word meat was not a metaphor for money it was, or spiritual, you know, food. That word meat meant exactly what it means. It means meat or spiritual food. So the tithe was, was the, the, the tenth of the harvest of the land. And then they were supposed to give that harvest to the Levites. Well, we know in the book of Hebrews that the Levitical priesthood no longer exists. So even if we wanted to tithe, at least according to the Malachi 3 tithe, Christians can't even do it. Because there's no Levitical priesthood that is even exists anymore that we could tithe to it. So there's many, many other reasons in there that too. But basically, if you read like the first 80 pages of the book as a show, how Malachi 3 and a lot of these preachers are taking scripture out of context and they're making it be something that it's not. And through that, you know, I prove, I, 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 prove, I think I prove, you know, pretty emphatically that tithing as far as 10% of your gross income, one, isn't even in the Bible. And then two, you know, tithing isn't for New Testament believers. I mean, the, the Malachi 3, you know, command to tithe doesn't apply to us. Another one of the heresies deals with this, what is called the prosperity gospel. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I mean, does that mean that if we, you know, if we're working hard and trying to be the best Christian we can be, then we ought to be uh, doing well financially? Is that what that means? 
That's exactly, sir, what that means. Um, and that's basically what they're preaching. Um, Word of faith preachers basically believe that since you're a Christian, that, you know, ultimately, you know, you know, we have the sense of entitlement. You know, we're king's kids, and therefore, we're, you know, we're, we're child of the king. So since we're child of the king, you know, we're supposed to be living like royalty. And that royalty you know, we're supposed to have the best of everything, the best of clothes, the best cars, the best houses, the best, you know, money, bling, bling, whatever you want to, you know, how the world says. As a Christian, we're supposed to have the best of everything. And, you know, I don't have a problem with Christians being blessed or, you know, financially wealthy or financially well off. You know, if you've got a good thing in a job and, you know, or the Lord blesses you with an invention or whatever and it makes millions or, or, you know, to write a book or whatever and it does well, then praise God. Um, but to say that, you know, we have a sense of entitlement because we're now a Christian now and therefore, you know, we're, you know, don't, don't believe, don't get me wrong, but I believe all Christians are favored, but to say that we're favored, you know, and, and this wealth, you know, comes to us, of, you know, you know, we have a right to be prosperous financially, and in fact, we're all supposed to be millionaires, you know, that's basically what they're teaching, and, and, I, and I come up against that. I mean, again, I don't have a problem with people being wealthy or Christians being, you know, millionaires, but to use false theology and false doctrine to try to promote that, which is what I believe that they're doing, then yeah, I have, a, I have an extreme uh, distaste for that. Yes, sir. Is that uh, taught much of the time on uh, television? Oh, absolutely. Um, and you'll see it a lot, sir, as it pertains to, you know, giving, when they do, like, their telethons and that they want to raise money. Because this also ties into what they call seed faith. And seed faith and the word of faith is basically saying, you know, if you if you sow some money into the ministry or to this particular TV station or if you sow money into their church or, you know, in a particular preacher, then God is going to financially prosper you. So basically, you know, if you give to this particular church or this particular TV station, then money is going to flow in your bank account and God's going to bless you financially because, you, you know, you're sowing money into their ministry. Well, the Bible does say, you know, if you in Second Corinthians nine, you know, if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. So basically, if you sow a lot, you'll reap a lot. However, you know, the reason I come up against it because it's basically saying, you know, it, well, if you give persons ministry, then God is automatically going to bless you with finances. And the truth of the matter is, you know, we have to be led to the Lord in everything that we do. And you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says, well, you know, if we just keep giving a whole bunch of money, then God's going to keep giving us a whole bunch of money in return, like He's a lost Vegas slot machine, you know. And there's nothing in the Bible that says God is like that. But however, and that's why I have such a hard time, you know, with this teaching, because it's basically saying, you know, we can manipulate God. You know, we can make God do what we want. You know, as long as I'm giving a whole bunch of money, then God is obligated to bless His word, and therefore God is obligated to bless us financially. And we're basically saying that, you know, we have the power to control God. <laughs> And therefore, you know, you know, we don't work for God anymore, but now God works for us. And basically, that's what some of these, you know, TV, you know, you asked about TV preachers. I heard one TV preacher on TV say, sir, he's like, you know, I can create any harvest I want. He's like, I can give. You know, when I give, I can make my harvest be basically anything I want it to be. And I'm like, well, you can create your own harvest. So now you can create your own world and you can make your own, make your own world happen because of your giving. And I'm like, well, you know, who died and made you God? You know, but um, that's pretty much, you know, what a lot of these preachers are saying on TV is, you know, yeah, because of your giving, you know, you can make your way prosper. So you can make your, you know, make your way, you know, financially wealthy through your giving. And they call that whole thing seed faith. So there are a number of heresies that you are focused on trying to help people see clearly the truth. And uh, mm -hmm. You say that this book opens up new revelations that may not have been exposed to in the past, so it can be an eye-opener for some. Right, exactly. Exactly. Well, we appreciate you sharing. Any closing thoughts? Yeah, well, just on, just on what you just said right there, sir, you know, I, I, I'd say a lot of people are, it'd be an eye-opener for some, because unfortunately, and I'll close with this, in a lot of these words of faith churches and just in a lot of ministries as well, you know, people like me who have a different view, a lot of times you can't really express it. Um, it's, you know, it's viewed as, you know, you're coming up against the man of God and you're coming up against his anointed. And therefore, you know, when you challenge these kind of teachings and doctrines, you know, it's kind of frowned upon in these churches. But like, I'm not going to say, you know, you're not allowed to speak, but it's, you're almost kind of like hush-hush. 
because, you know, you don't want to come up against the pastor or the preacher. And unfortunately, when you go to a lot of these churches, that's why it may be an eye-opener for some, because in a lot of these churches, they've never been exposed to what I say in my book, so they don't even know what I'm even talking about, because they've never even heard it before, because in a lot of these churches, they've never even heard it. It's brand new, brand new information to them, because in these churches, they're not all allowed to express it, or even, like, bring it into the fold. So, you know, consequently, if they read this book, I think it will be a blessing to them and a blatant eye-opener because, again, if they are exposed to word of, in a Word of Faith church or Word of Faith preachers on TV, some of the stuff in my book, sir, they might have never even heard of before because these, these type of churches, unfortunately, are not allowed so, or just not exposed. So I think it will be a blessing to them, you know, both books, you know, on holiness, just to let people know, look, you know, in Christ, we can live holy. We can do this. You know, we don't have to be hypocrites. You know, and then, two. And the second book, to let people know, you know, there is a different way. And if they seek the Lord, you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, can definitely lead them in another way. Well, you focus on four main heresies. We've talked about a couple of them. Uh, Another one in Section 3, Are We Gods with a Lower uh, Case G? Are Christians really gods with a lower case G? And the other one, uh, are Jews and Gentiles under the same covenant? So, uh, obviously, if if you would like to know more... How do we get your book, Joe? Tell us. Uh, there's several ways you can get it. Um, you can obviously go to iUniverse.com and, you know, under search, just type my last name, Bahota, B-A-C-E-H-O-T-A. But it's also on uh, Books A Million. It's on Borders. It's on Amazon.com. It's on uh, BarnesandNobles.com. So basically any, any, any major store, like the Barnes & Nobles, Books A Million, uh, Borders, go to any of those on Amazon. You can get both of them. They're on Kindle now, and, and then I think it's on the Milk and stuff, too. So you can get it pretty much anywhere on those dot-coms and find it, and you can order it, and uh, you can get it, you know, shipped to you within a week. Pretty simple. Well, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That was Joe Pahota, Jr. He is the author of his second book, Word of Faith Preachers, How Misinterpretation of Scripture Might Lead You Astray. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Mom with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Here Be Dragons, and the author is June Harris, and June joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, June. Yes. Good to have you with us. Thank you. We're going to talk about this romantic historical murder mystery. Right. 
Here be dragons. I'm going to read a few things you have written just to set the stage for our discussion. You say this. This is a work of historical fiction set in the island of Tobago in 1856. Jessalyn Kirk, a young English woman, has embarked on a marriage of convenience to Dominic Reynolds, a wealthy planter. Alas for Jessalyn, however, the marriage has made her the target of murderous intentions from several sources. You like to write about strong women overcoming difficulties. Uh, I guess that's what your focus is here. It is with this book. Yes, it is. Well, what was the motivation? Uh, You know, how did this come to pass? I had in mind a novel in which a woman uh, is beset upon, forgive that uh, old-fashioned term, uh, in England, and she has no way out of her difficulty. So she leaves England, she flees, essentially, and goes to a place where she hopes that she can make a new life. That was the the start, the, the thought, the impetus for the book. Before she goes to Tobago, is that how you pronounce that, Tobago? That's correct, yes. Now she is in, uh, well, she lives near London, right? She lives in, in, a, in a city outside of London, yes, so an uh, area, a rural area outside of London. And uh, she thinks she's a tenant farmer? Is that what her uh, self-image is? Well, no. Actually, she is, uh, and this is not giving anything away about the book, she is the illegitimate daughter of a duke, but she doesn't know that uh, originally. She, her father, the duke, mar- uh, it impregnates a, a governess who uh, is tutoring his daughters. He marries the governess off to a, a tenant farmer. So she grows up thinking that she is the daughter of this tenant farmer. And only fairly early in the book, she learns that the tenant farmer is not her father, that the duke is her father. Well, tell us more about Jessalyn. Jessalyn Kirk, uh, what makes her tick? She is a uh, young woman. (laughs) She is a strong young woman. She is, um, her mother was the governess for the Duke's daughters. Her mother was married to um, a tenant farmer to protect the Duke's name. Um, But her mother raises her in an, atypical way for a child of that era. Her mother is a governess. Her mother speaks French. Her mother has a uh, an educated background, and she raises her daughter in this way. So the daughter is not a typical tenant farmer's daughter. She has background. She has knowledge. She has a second language, and so she is more perhaps we could call it sophisticated than um, would be for a woman typical of her status. Now, her brother Jamie has some uh, serious problems. This causes uh, a lot of turmoil in the family? Oh, yes. Jamie is a hellraiser. He's a lovable and charming young man, but he is a... The term then would have been rapscallion. He is a he's a he's a hellraiser. He goes out and does all kinds of things. And when he gets into really really serious trouble, they uh, grab him and they ha- ultimately hang him for his crimes. And because of that, there's some revelations that uh, no one knew about. No one knew about it, but uh, in the, as the trial, you know, progresses, uh, Jesslyn reveals the fact that her father is the Duke, and the Duke is the one who insists that her brother be hanged. So this makes a, a big problem. It's not only a problem for Jesslyn, it's a problem for the Duke, it's a problem for the social milieu that they live in. So off to the West Indies, she has sent... 
she is. She takes a, uh, she has money, so she takes a um, trip on, um, she books passage on a rather scurv- scruffy little uh, ship headed for um, Trinidad, for um, uh, Port of Spain in Trinidad. And that's, um, and that is, becomes problematic as well. And we won't go into the details, but the uh, ghost of her brother uh, really saves her. Does indeed, and does throughout the book in more than one occasion. Her brother, her brother tells her before he dies, "I'm not going away. I will be around, to keep an eye on you." And he pops up on uh, on several occasions within the book. Now the husband. Dominic, that she eventually marries. Uh, yes. Tell us about him. Dominic is a lovely man. I would, if I were going to cast him in a movie, I would probably make him Hugh Jackman. Uh, but um, uh, but he is he is simply a lovely man. He is very strong. He is uh, he has been married to this wretched, pardon me, bitch of a woman. Uh, and he has, uh, but he marries um, Jesslyn as a marriage of convenience. He marries her to keep from having to marry the sister of the wretched woman he was married to before. And um, he uh, does this reluctantly. She does it reluctantly. It's one of those marriages of convenience that I'm sorry to say, but you know, I used it. It's something of a romance novel cliche, but I found it useful, and I think it works for my plot. And it sounds like, or in reading about your story, there's a couple of other women that would love to have Dominic for themselves. Oh, yes, they certainly are. Dominic is tremendously charming and handsome. And his previous, his first wife, Adelaide, was an identical twin, and the woman that uh, he is trying to avoid marrying is her identical twin, her sister Alita. And when Alita comes out to marry him, he has already married Jessalyn, and this is a real plot complication because Alita is furious about it. Now you call her a vile woman. <laughs> oh yes, vile so, indeed. So uh, there isn't anything she won't do. Um, I like writing evil women because there are nothing. There's nothing they won't do. Um, it's you know when you write good people, they are defined by um, by what they don't do and. They don't do bad things, and that's harder to write. Now, when you write evil women, evil women can get away with anything. They can do anything. Of course, they ultimately get their comeuppance. That's how it works. But uh, but I like writing evil women and I, you, because you can just set them loose and then just chew up the scenery, and it's all fun to do. And then there's Lacey Delaney. Lacey Delaney. Lacey Delaney is, she would like to have an affair with Dominic, but she, Lacey has kind of a background. She was an actress, which is not a good thing to be in that day and time. And, uh, but she would like to have an affair with Dominic. Dominic is not interested. She's the wife of one of his friends. And Lacey, uh, is is you know, but Lacey is ultimately taken care of by uh, nature and uh, 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 circumstances. So you know, she's uh, not. Uh, she ultimately is not a threat to Jesslyn, although Jesslyn believes her to be. So there are murders and attempted murders throughout murders the story. Murders and attempted murders and all kinds of you know wretched things, but it's great fun. Uh, can imagine Jessalyn uh, being confronted by, you call it a bushmaster. Now, what is a bushmaster? A bushmaster is a snake. They are not native to uh, Tobago, where Jessalyn lives, so they have to import the bushmaster from Venezuela. A bushmaster is an unusual snake in that it is one of the few that is aggressive. Um, most snakes are 
reclusive. That is, if you frighten them, they'll go away. Rattlers, moccasins. If if they are not trapped, they'll go away. But bushmasters will pursue, and this is why they're so dangerous. What is Jessalyn? What is her ultimate goal? Uh, you know, with her with her knowledge of who she is and. And it seems like uh, maybe she's, uh, well, is she living the life that she intended? She's not living the life that she intended, but she didn't know, but she didn't truly have any intentions. She wanted to get away from England because she was in such a desperate situation there. And she wanted to have a life in which she could be relatively free and um, have her own identity. She didn't start out that way with Dominic, but ultimately that is what she is offered and that's how her life uh, comes out to be. Does she know who's trying to murder her? No, she doesn't. In fact, uh, with any luck at all, if I've done my work well, nobody knows who's trying to murder her. Until the end, I guess. Until the end, yes, certainly. <laughs> and what about, uh, then, how, then why is Alita murdered? Alita is murdered by accident. Maybe trying to uh, get Jessalyn. She, they're trying to get Jessalyn, and Alita dies accidentally. Alita is just, you know, sort of in the way, and she just uh, uh, kicks off accidentally. The reasons that I did this was because when I was researching this book, I knew that I wanted to put it in a warm climate away from England. So the West Indies, uh, or the East Indies, whatever, it sounded good. And um, I ran across a phrase, Rich is a Tobago planter. And when I found that phrase, I started, poked, started poking around at it and realized that, came to, to see that planters on the island of Tobago were considered the richest people of their day. Now, that didn't last very long, but at the time, rich as a Tobago planter was like rich as Croesus. And they, when I found that, I thought, well, we can make a story set with a Tobago planter. And that's where I went with the story. Now, one of the things you're trying to show is survival. Of, that Jessalyn has this, I guess, uh, by her wits alone, as you say, and using whatever means that present themselves. But uh, this is uh, this is not easy to survive, especially when there are so many forces working against her. This is absolutely true. And furthermore, part of her, her stuff is luck. It's, uh, it's not all luck. Oprah Winfrey has said she doesn't believe in luck, uh, that it's opportunity meeting uh, preparation. And I think that's a part of where uh, Jessalyn is with this. She is, if she had not been able to speak French, for instance, she would not be in the situation where, the good situation where she finds herself. If she had not been educated by her mother. So these are things that play into her situation, but she also is a person who makes use of her wit and her intelligence and her and her stamina to accomplish what she needs to accomplish. And as you put it, money is very helpful in life, but love is indispensable. Indispensable. You can't do without it. I mean, you can you can do. Uh, money will get you so far, but if you don't have some love in there somewhere, life's not worth living. Any other concluding thoughts? I just hope that people who read the book will find it as much fun to read as I found it to write. Well, we appreciate you sharing with us on iUniverse Radio. Tell us how to get your book, June. Um, you can get it at iUniverse. Uh, you can find that uh, online, or you can get it at Amazon. And you have a website. I do have a website. If you uh, plug in my name, June Harris, you can find the uh, website. Well, the title of the book, Here Be Dragons, and the author is June Harris. June, thanks so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much for calling me.
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Net Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriended Principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, Girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Pinnacle Seven, A Political Mystery. And the author is Jackie Richards, and Jackie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jackie. Good morning. How are you, Steve? Well, good to have you with us, Jackie. Uh, This is not your first book, different from what you've written in the past. I'm going to read just a little what you've written concerning your book uh, as an introduction. You say this, The Pinnacle Seven is about a group dedicated to introducing a viable third party into the U.S. political scene. The original members of the group have been, indoctrinate, have been indoctrinating certain young people to carry out their mission. Three of these people are drawn together and enmeshed in mystery, murder, power struggles, while each finds a way to fulfill their destiny. Well, very timely book uh, with a lot of the unrest in this country, of the direction of the country. Uh, again, this book is really different from what you've written in the past. Why did you go this direction? Well, like many U.S. citizens, I am alarmed about our country's uh, present situation. Our debt, our spread of military commitments, corporate corruption, and so on. Uh, Columnists uh, and books written by experts do not seem to be raising awareness among the average citizen. And I thought I would attempt a thought-provoking novel that might catch the reader by surprise in a mystery category, uh, which is so popular with readers. You might say uh, it's a chocolate coating for a difficult subject. Well, it is a difficult subject, and you're, you're going to have those who uh, cheer you on and those who are critical of you for going down this road. But uh, I guess a, a lady of your young age of 83 years, uh, I guess you are willing to uh, share what you believe in, right? Well, that's correct, and I feel at this stage of life I really have... Uh uh, nothing to uh, scare me away from doing so. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the characters in the book. Uh, Cassie Danforth, we would call her uh, the main protagonist. That's correct. She's a television journalist who works uh, in Washington, D.C. But she's uh, in close contact with members of Congress. But she's called back to her dying father's bedside in the middle of the night um, 
And as Clifford Danforth takes his last breath, he extracts a promise from Cassie that she will leave her position in Washington and return to her hometown, which is a small North Carolina coast town. And there she is to run the family newspaper. As he holds her hand and takes his last breath, he whispers it will begin here. So Kathy is left in mystery and a desire not to keep the promise, but then she does. And so so it begins, huh? And so it begins here. That's what he said. That's what he said. It begins here. Complete mystery to Cassie. But she soon becomes involved in a murder investigation along with the town sheriff, who is Jed Ryan, one of the minor characters in the story. And uh, then other secrets in, in her father's life begin to reveal themselves, and many of them in disturbing ways. Unfolding clues lead to Cassie's beginning becoming involved in a bizarre murder mystery that throws the town into a tailspin and endangers Cassie's very life. But then a handsome, mysterious stranger arrives in town, and he reveals even more secrets about her father's involvement in unique political activities. And these revelations lead Cassie to the Pinnacle 7 group. So is he, and, part, uh, is he part of that group? Is he part of the Political 7? Or the Pinnacle 7? Well, it, turn, it, it turns out he is, but there's a great deal to his story also. And he is connected to Cassie's uh, hometown in a very mysterious way that's revealed. Um, and then um, he has come to town to see another citizen of, uh, of Clayton Landing, which is her hometown. And it turns out that Cassie is uh, also uh, involved in, in uh, Linwood Johnson's life, who is the third and important protagonist in the story. Uh, Linwood is a professor, a political professor at the University of Virginia, and a former football star, so he's well-known. All three of the main protagonists are well-known. And uh, unbeknown to them, they have been sort of raised uh, as children. Uh, well, politics has sort of been served up in their pablum, so to speak. And her father's been involved with the, the political seven group for a great deal of, a, of his life. It was a group formed after World War II by some very serious uh, young men. And in the ensuing years, they have done a great deal of work to to produce a viable, possible third party. A lot of background that they've gone into. Is that something that uh, you feel needs to happen? Is that why you chose that kind of a theme? Well, you know, I've had several readers tell me, where is this party? How can they join it? They're actually sort of believing there is a background in this story leading to an actual third party. Of course, that's not my real intent, but it's it's making people think. And I've had several people so they've turned around and read the book over again because there was so much to think about. Uh, I've done a, a great deal of research. I have, I have. Four bookcases in my home, one dedicated to political books, one to philosophy books, one to writing books, and then one to novels. <laughs> so I do a great deal of uh, reading. I seem to have a book all the time, and all of it leading up to writing this book. You say that you fear for the middle class. Well, there are a great many people that fear it for the middle class of America. We're slowly losing out, uh, declining in our ability to uh, have the funds that we need. Even when we have two people working in a family, it's beginning to be very difficult to keep up 
uh, with the normal expenses of raising a family, uh, college, everything is getting beyond the reach of the middle class. Uh, many, many columnists have been warning us on this. And this is happening while China is building up its middle class and recognize the importance of the middle class. Well, what makes your book different? Uh, there's a lot of books being written about the uh, uncertainty in this country at this time, of, about the political scene, the, the corporate scene, the behind-the-scenes government uh, deals. Uh, what makes your book different? Well, I think I have gone back into history a little bit, given a little information about what our forefathers were hoping for the country and how that that vision that they had is slipping. Um, I have tried to make an interesting story, uh, not, a, not a professorial story, that people can enjoy. At the same time, it, it really makes them think a little bit in depth about what really is happening in the country, not with a uh, screaming, yelling type divisional book, but with one that uh, there is some hope that some people uh, can talk to each other and uh, work together uh, to bring back our country to its its full strength and, and uh, the vision that our forefathers had. So uh, Cassie Danforth and Clayton Landing and Linwood Johnson, uh, they're brought together to uh, uh, work behind the scenes or uh, to develop this, or are they in the forefront? Well, um, Cassie Danforth, Cooper Canada, and Linwood Johnson uh, have all had a, a wonderful background in politics. They've, they've, they've been raised by men who are very serious about the problems in our country. And the, the uh, Pinnacle 7 group has done a huge background of work towards a third party. It's not just something that's developed overnight um, by, a, by a group that's just against things. It's a group that's studied uh, foreign uh, problems, uh, language problems, and they're ready to go forth uh, in full force for a third party, having been uh, seriously studying the uh, situation for years. You know. What is the purpose of the uh, murder in this story? Uh, how does that kind of pull these characters uh, into your theme? Uh, what, what is? What can you tell us about the murder without giving everything else? You know, without giving it all away. Well, I I wanted to make this a uh, a mystery book. That was my intent in order to get a wider. Uh, readership, and uh, so I, if I'm going to have a murder mystery, I have to have a murder in it, and uh, I began to weave uh, this into the story and to make it interesting for those who really want to read a murder mystery, and I'm just leading up to uh, the other uh, political attributes of the book through a murder mystery. Now, you've worked for the government, haven't you? I have. I've wor worked as a journalist. I've worked for the government. Uh, I've uh, worked in some political campaigns, one for a senator, one for a, rep a congressman, one for a congresswoman. Um, so I have a background in everything I've written about, really. Do your characters, um, are, are they patterned after people that you've met along the way? No, none of them. Oh. All except except one, I have to say. There is a uh, character in this story named Pearl, who is a pseudo-mother for Cassie Danforth. And Pearl is in both of my books. One of my readers recognizes and ask about it. But Pearl was actually based on my own nanny when I was growing up in the South. 
And she's a very strong character in the book also. And uh, then some humanism, shall I say, uh, to the book in a good way, I think. So no. she's the only character that I can pinpoint that I actually have a vision of a real person. Is there a main antagonist? Cassie Danforth? Uh, no, other than just watching uh, beautiful women on on the television, which there are quite a few of them right now. <laughs> who, uh, no, uh, who would, who or what group would be uh, those that are, I guess they must be part of the murder that are trying to uh, stop Cassie and others from developing this third party? Uh, these, there, there are four men involved in this, and these men have been, like a lot of small-town politicians, have been sort of running Clayton Landing for many years. And uh, like uh, we're finding out in our news, uh, many of, of these smaller-town politicians seem to let the power of their positions run away with them, and they begin to do unsavory things, and these are four men that uh, just due to their power and uh, the abuse of their power just take more and more risks, do more and more things that shouldn't be done, and uh, they are involved in Cassie's life and in the mystery of the murder. And their names are Charles Mason Good, John Mason Good, Gordon Everly, and Mason Lang Langdon. Does she uh, know? One of them is. I'm sorry. Does she know them well? Yes, she does. They all have lived in this town for. She's lived in this town all of her life until she left for her career, and she knows them all very well. And her father, in his work as a newspaper editor, often had dealings with him and did not trust him. So she knows that as well, what her father felt about them. That's correct, yes. The title of the book, The Pinnacle Seven, A Political Mystery, and the author is Jackie Richards. Jackie, tell us how to get your book. Well, it uh, can be ordered on Amazon.com or from iUniverse, and it uh, can be ordered at bookstores. They will order it and uh, tell you when it comes in. Do you have a website for it? Yes, I do. It's com. JackieRichardsAuthor.com. Well, Jackie, thanks so much for sharing your story with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you for calling. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.